You're listening to a podcast by BI Norwegian Business School. Men of business in England do not like the currency question. They are perplexed to define accurately what money is. How to count, they know, but what to count, they do not know. These were the words of the famous 19th century British economist, political analyst, banker, writer, and subsequently editor of The Economist magazine, Walter Begott. The quote grasps an important issue that will be at the center of today's episode of the podcast Financial Bubbles, Crashes and Crisis. Namely, what exactly is money? What counts as money? The answer to this question is not as obvious as many might think. Even more debatable is the question of where money comes from. How is money created? In recent years, the question of money creation has been increasingly scrutinized. In 2014, the Bank of England published an article where they critically examined the standard view of money creation as it traditionally had been presented in macroeconomic textbooks. Their conclusion was that this theory, which put the central banks in more or less full control of the money creation process, simply was, and I quote, not an accurate description of how money is created in reality. Instead, what the central bankers at the Bank of England argued was that, and I quote again, the majority of money in the modern economy is created by commercial banks making loans. How can this be? How can commercial banks simply create their own money? And what does this mean for the role of central banks and money creation more generally in the development of financial crisis? My name is Espen Ekberg. I'm a professor of economic history at BI Norwegian Business School, and I'm hosting this podcast on financial bubbles, crashes and crisis. And as you probably already have realized, the theme of today's show is money. To help me answer the questions I just posed, I invited, guess what, a central banker. My guest today, Arne Kloster, he works at the Department for Monetary Policy at the Norwegian Central Bank. And Arne, welcome. How are you? Thank you. I'm uh, good. Great to be here. Okay. I came across Arne f- because a few years back he wrote this article in Norwegian Central Bank's own blog. It's called the Norwegian Bankplassen. And the article was called How is money created? And essentially, Arne here gave a summary in Norwegian of some of the insights published in the article by the Bank of England, but I I must say in an even more accessible and down-to-earth manner. Uh, So I thought Arne must be the perfect man to to help me out with understanding and helping our listener, not the least, to understand something that might seem like a somewhat complicated issue, namely the nature of money and money creation. And... So, Arne, maybe you can just start by telling a little bit about yourself and especially why you are so interested. It seems like it, at least, that you are so interested in money. <laughs> yeah, the, the last thing is correct. Uh, well, uh, as you said, I work at the Central Bank. Uh, I've been there for more than 20 years, actually, which uh, reveals that uh, I'm not that young anymore. Uh, I turned 50, actually. So, <clears throat> uh, so I'm an, uh, from my education, I'm an economist from the University of Oslo. And um, and currently I work at the monetary policy department at the Norges Bank. Uh, but prior to that, I was 10 years in the market operations and analysis department. And I started there 
Um, that's the, sort of the, the central bank's operational arm and the department that analyzes financial markets. Uh, and I started there just bef- before the financial crisis broke out in 2008. So that was a really uh, steep uh, learning curve uh, and, um, and uh, very, very interesting. Um, and in the aftermath of that, I, I have been working a lot on liquidity management systems for, for the central bank. And, and we, we worked on reforming that uh, back in 2011. So, so that sort of forced us to think quite a bit about the role of central bank reserves and how, how these things uh, work. So um, you also mentioned Bank Plus and Blog. I have to advertise a little bit for that. Uh, <laughs> sure, <laughs> that's sure, a, sure. That's a blog <laughs> written by uh, Norges Bank's employee. It was created in uh, 2018. By now it has 91 posts on a wide variety of topics. Uh, most of them are in Norwegian, but also some in English. Uh, and the idea of this blog format is to present analysis in a short form that is accessible to a broad audience. And and uh, readers may also post uh, post questions and comments. So so that's to allow a more interactive approach than than we maybe normally have through through working papers and staff memos and so on. So uh, I I encourage everyone to to subscribe to this blog. It's free and uh, and you get notified whenever there's a new post. I support this. I I, I read it quite a lot, and it's it's good. I think for students and others who are interested in the themes that we are talking about in this podcast, that you should. Uh, you should have a look at this uh, blog. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and, and my interest in money, you asked about, uh, I guess, maybe on a personal level, I guess everyone are more or less interested in money. Um, and I'm no different there, but but sort of my professional interest in, in money uh, stems, uh, as I said, from the financial crisis in 2008-9. And uh, I must admit I was rather ignorant about it before that. Um, it was not something that was taught at the University of Oslo at all when I went there. And and, but of course, the financial crisis put a lot of questions related to money and credit much higher on the agenda than before. And uh, like what's really happening in the banking sector and how did they get there? What's the role of liquidity risk versus credit or solvency risk? What's driving the creation of credit and broad money? And what's the link with central bank money? And how does quantitative easing work? And can nominal rates be negative? And so, I mean, the list of questions was was very long. Yeah, and we, so, will, we will probably, hopefully, come into some of them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So just yeah. Yeah. Continue. Yeah. So so just having experienced that at close range, I was just really curious about these things, and we have been a small group of people at the bank who 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 uh, has been working a bit on these questions and also was, of course, inspired by the Bank of England work that, that you mentioned. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, so, so you have been thinking a lot about this money uh, and money and credit. And so we can just start by, by asking then, when you hear the word money, what, what is it? How can we define it? Is it possible to define money? Well, as I uh, must admit, I, s- I saw you say in your lecture, I think mm-hmm. a good starting point is money is what money does. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you sort of define money based on the basic functions that it has. And then we normally talk about three basic functions. One is that it's a means of payment. I mean, it's something that you're willing to accept as a payment for goods or services that you deliver. The second one is that it should be a store of value, something that you can keep and is uh, then should not be perishable and it should be maintain its purchasing power over time. And then finally, it should be a, a unit of account, a sort of measure of prices, both in absolute terms and in relative terms. So, I mean, pricing goods and services in relative terms without money would be quite complicated. 
like uh, how how many liters of milk is the price of a cucumber i mean and and what's the price of a banana yeah you know so so money faci- greatly facilitates that and and actually it's a, it's a great invention one of them, yeah i i i think that's the right way to see money mm. and um, i read this book sapiens over the summer and and uh, and there the money there's a big part on money as a sort of a a, a major uh, leap forward for for development clearly and this is uh, also you know what i what i tell the students as well so how can we define money we can look at what it does and uh, the functions really but uh, we also hear a lot about different types of money uh, so sometimes we broad money and base money and then we also hear about uh, you know cash the obvious mm. obvious types of money but there are also other types of money yeah i mean we we normally distinguish between three main types of money it is as you mentioned physical cash which is uh, known to most people although maybe to a lesser and lesser extent <laughs> if you if you talk to young people i i guess they don't uh, see that much cash as we did when we grew up but uh, but still that's uh, that's a sort of a classical form of money physical cash notes and coins and that's sort of a liability of the central bank that can be held by anyone in the economy and then the second kind of money which is less uh, known to most people is central bank reserves that's also a liability of the central bank and it's an electronic form of, mo- of money that can only be held by banks so that's sort of the 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 um uh, the means of payments between banks supplied by the central bank and then the third kind of money which is by far the most uh, common one i mean it's say 98% of all money is deposits in commercial banks and that's a liability of the commercial bank that is held by the public and that's sort of the the money that we have all have in our accounts um to a greater or lesser extent yeah the uh, the central bank uh, reserves as as money uh, could it could you compare it to you know is it like um the the bank's deposits yeah it is yeah yeah it's good that you say that it's it's uh, that's exactly what it is it's the bank's deposits in the central bank in the same way as you and me have deposits in a commercial bank and these are the money that are used to make transactions between banks yeah mm. because you know every day in the payment system there are millions of transactions i mean i pay my bills uh, on the on my bank's website for instance and then those money are trans- transferred from my account to the receiver's account but then behind the curtain then reserves are transferred from my bank's account in the say in the central bank to to the receiver's uh, bank's account in the central bank so so that that's sort of where uh, where the banks pay each other is is in the central bank mm. okay so so um, in in the good old days normally if you've talked about money you could equal it with for example silver coins or gold so they were valuable things that we were used as money but today we have what we call fiat money so basically there's there's only electronic registers or there's some some metallic or notes that are really just paper yeah um but these things we trust we we accept it as payment for things we do or uh, things we sell and we we can use it everywhere and i think it's this is a fascinating social institution and but why do we why do we trust uh, money do you think why is why is it that we 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 can manage to you know have this type of thing to doing exchange yeah um 
Let's start by by looking at money as a sort of IOU, a kind of debt debt okay. certificate, mm-hmm. because uh, IOU. Um, because if you think of it, instead of money, we could in theory have paid each other without money. We could have just used our individual IOU IOUs or debt certificates. That would be claims on our future work effort. I would then, for instance, buy something from you. Uh, in return for a claim that you get something of equal value back from me in the future, right? Yeah. That that would be a way a way for us to transact to transact in theory. Um, uh, but then, would you give me something of value in return for such an IOU from me? That requires, of course, that you trust me to deliver on my promise of future effort. And even if you did that for my IOU to work as money you would have been able to use it onwards to pay for something else from someone else. So uh, so that would require them to trust me, even if they probably would not know who I am. And so there are obvious trust issues here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but money can still be seen as a form of such IOUs, only in a form that solves this trust problem. Uh, and after all, I'm willing to work in return for money because I know that someone else will deliver goods or services to me for those when I ask for that in the future. So, so money is a sort of generalized claim on someone else's goods or services. Or, or could you say it's not? It's like an an, uh, an IOU that everybody trusts. Yeah, yeah. And, and then and then instead the question, of having individual IOUs, so it's yeah. a, it's it's a common yeah. IOU that yeah. everybody trusts. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would say that. Mm. It's a it's a kind of generalized IOU, and then the question is, why do we trust these IOUs, mm-hmm. even if they I say they're generalized? Mm. Well, of course, I mean I trust money because I trust that everyone else trusts it, uh, but why do I trust that? Yeah. So, so going back to money as an IOU and the trust problem, uh, I guess as we'll talk more about later, uh, money is created by banks, and banks are the institutions that make our individual IOUs into money that can be trusted by everyone. And and how does that happen? Well, let's say I go to a bank and ask for a loan. Mm -hmm. Uh, In order to get that loan, I must promise the bank to pay them a part of my future income. Uh, And the the bank will check that I actually have income, that I have a job. Uh, It will also check if I have other loans and what kind of assets I might be able to pose as collateral for that loan. And if the loan is granted, if the bank says okay to all these things, I get money from the bank. And other people will accept this money as payment for their goods and services if they trust that the bank has done a good credit assessment of me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is, of course, a bit stylized, but I I think it captures the basic mechanism of banks' role of turning individual IOUs into trustworthy money, that they sort of do this job of making sure that people keep their promises of future effort. Yeah. And money represents those promises mm-hmm. that are sort of get underwritten by the bank, mm-hmm. if, if you will. But but this must have been something that is also related to, uh, uh, you know, that the, the state, for example, has a bank, central bank that creates money that yeah. cannot be counterfeited and that the, you, the, the state will accept taxes in, in money. And so there is always demand for this type of money. Yeah, you're perfectly right. I mean... Now I took the the pure private sector yeah, yeah. sort of version yeah. of it, but yeah. but you're perfectly right. Of course, the state plays also an important role 
in all the things you say and also in regulating the banks and providing insurance that deposits are safe and uh, yeah and also accepting as, uh, them at, as tax payments uh, as you said okay so so i think now we have a fairly good view of what money is uh, but then you you started a little bit talking about how money is created and you said something that some people might think is it's strange that banks create money uh, uh, in recent, as I said in the introduction, in, in the recent years, there has been some discussion about this uh, thing, how money is created. And it started really with this Bank of England article in 2014, where they said that the standard economic textbooks, they have it wrong, or at least they, it's not precise way of describing money creation. So can you just tell us a little bit about the standard view of money creation, how the new view of money creation that, you know, have came out first, I think, from the 2014 article and then has, in a way, spread a little bit around. Mm. So what, how... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if we start by by what we can call the sort of standard view or old view of money creation, mm. uh, we could perhaps call that the money multiplier view would be one uh, one way of characterizing it. And that, that sort of stems from the, the institutional arrangement of... Uh, of binding reserve requirements for banks. This meant that that um, banks receiving customer deposits, they had to hold a fraction of those deposits as, as reserves in the central bank, in their accounts in the central bank. So uh, if the reserve requirement was 10%, for instance, then, um, then a bank that received 100 of cash uh, as a deposit from a client could only sort of lend out 90 of them and had to keep the last 10 as reserves in the central bank. And then if the deposits moved to another bank, then the next bank receiving those 90 could only lend out 81 and then so on. And, and that sort of led to that, well, 100 of reserves could sort of support or or allow up to 1,000 in, in broad money. Mm-hmm. So, so that's sort of the, the money multiplier. And this... Um, this also explains why cash and central banks' reserves is sometimes called high-powered money. That sort of those forms of money had the power to control the stock of broad deposit money in a quite direct way. So, um, just before before yeah, you continue, yeah. you, you use use this expression "broad money." Yeah. So, could you please just explain? Yeah, by broad money, I mean the, basically deposits, as we talked about, deposits in commercial banks. That okay. little money that we sort of all know. And these are different from base money then, huh? <clears throat> yeah, because uh, as we talked about the different forms of money, the, what I call broad money or deposit money, that's sort of you, your and mine deposits in the in the commercial banks, whereas, whereas uh, central bank money or reserves, that's the bank's deposits in the central bank. So, so that's these two forms of, of money, mm-hmm. the bank's means of payments and the public's means of payment. Okay. So, so well, then just continue. What you had this standard view of money creation. What what's wrong with it? Well, um, the thing is that this system that it sort of builds on or describes of of these reserve requirements that banks have to hold in the central bank. Uh, that system has been abandoned in most modern advanced economies today. I mean, you still see it in some developing countries around the world and so on, but. But in Europe and the U.S., it's it's that system is is no longer uh, what is used. So so that sort of leads us to the new way of money creation, which is 
not necessarily a completely new and different way. I, I don't think the Bank of England in 2014 found out that they then discovered that private banks actually create money. No, I agree. It, 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 it was just that it was realized that textbooks, as you said, very often describes a bit outdated institutional setup, which which gives an in, inaccurate sort of um, view of how money is created. So, so this new view, in a sense, reflects more modern institutional factors in, in a correct way. And that is that, I mean, the difference between them is, in both views, commercial banks create money in forms of deposits, I would say. But the question is, what constrains them in doing so? As I said, in the old view, it's the amount of reserves they hold in the central bank. In what we can call the new view, there's no direct link between central bank money and broad money or deposit money. Uh, and as I guess we might talk more about later, there are some other mechanisms in the, in the sort of modern economy that constrain and limits money creation by banks. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not these reserve requirements, it's, it's other things that constrain the banks. And this also means that this money multiplier that you see in textbooks sometimes, that it's not a very useful concept in my view as a, as a description of today's advanced economies. So, so the amount of cash and reserves is not directly linked to the amount of broad deposit money, as, as you often see in textbooks. Mm -hmm. But, but I, I, I need to come back to this quote from this article from 2014, where it says that the majority of money in the modern economy is created by commercial banks making loans. Yeah. So could you please explain how this, uh, this can lead to more money? Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that was a good thing about this article. I think that, that is sort of very, in a very neat way, described how money is actually, actually created. Because, I mean, as we said in, in the old textbooks, you, 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 you often saw banks portrayed as, as pure intermediaries. Right? They received uh, savings or, or a deposit from, from a client and then they lent that out to someone else in the economy. Mm, that's a standard. And that's uh, a sort I, of standard view, mm. but, but which is not wrong, but uh, still I think there's more to it as, as this Bank of England article uh, points out. And for instance, where did those deposits come from in the first place? I mean, uh, the textbooks didn't say that much about that. Uh, so, uh, so I think, um, uh, I mean, the, the creation of money is is um, is sort of happens when when a bank give a loan because when a bank give a loan, it it basically deposits your account with the, that amount, and that money is made, if you will, out of thin air. It's just a uh, a click on some computer and your account has uh, 1,000 more than it had uh, five seconds ago. Yeah, so basically I make a loan, uh, I get uh, acceptance from, for a loan from a bank and uh, so they pay me the loan by crediting my, my yeah. bank account yeah. with the, the size of the, of the loan. Yeah. And then there has been created a bank deposit or my de the size of bank deposits has increased. And since the definition of, of money, also one of the types of money is bank deposits. If this type of money increases, then we could say that money has been created. Absolutely, yeah. But, but the thing is uh, that I, because later we will uh, also, uh, in later um, uh, podcasts, we talk about how banks work. Mm. And so, of course, when I teach the students about this, I, I make this general, uh, you know, um, 
overview that, okay, you have the deposits, it's, it's funding the bank, people are putting their money in the bank, and then the bank uh, lends it out. Mm. And it's important for the bank to always have uh, their you know, funding for their loans. Mm. And if there's not enough deposits, then they have to go and uh, lend money. So they, uh, they issue bonds or something. So, yeah. so banks both you know, fund their, their activities by deposits and by lending. They're borrowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah they're borrowing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm borrowing. Mm. Yeah. Um, but now you're saying that uh, banks can simply create their own deposits in a way. Yeah. They, uh, yeah. So th- can they create their own funding? This is this sounds a little bit strange. <laughs> I know it sounds strange, and but but yes, they <clears throat> by uh, when they when they lend, they also create their own funding that, because they, as you say, deposit is a important part of their. <laughs> Of their debt mm-hmm. uh, liabilities, so mm-hmm. so that is created when the loan is given. Yes. So then the obvious next question is then why uh, are they not creating as you know just uh, infinite amount of funding? So this is you know what what limits their creation of money then? Yeah, uh, that's the obvious question. Uh, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess some would would perhaps say that the answer to that is regulation. Um, and that's not the wrong answer, of course, but but I like to think of it <coughs> slightly differently. So, I think I think it's important to realize that it is also in the bank's own interest not to make infinite loans, leading to infinite amounts of money. Uh, because excessive lending uh, that means several things. If the if the bank should do that, first of all, it means that the bank will at some point have reduced profitability because they must eventually push loans at lower rates as they sort of move downwards along the demand curve for for new loans which will which will hurt their profits in the end uh, the second thing is that it will mean higher credit risk as they give out more and more loans to to l- presumably less and less credit worthy people or customers um, they run a high risk of making a loss in that people cannot repay those loans and, and who are first in line to take that loss? Well, that's the owners of the banks, the, the people who have bought stocks in that bank. So it's not in their interest that, that the bank gives out too much loans to people who shouldn't have them. <clears throat> and then the third thing is maybe a bit more subtle, but excessive lending also means high liquidity risk for the bank. And what does that mean? Well, that means that the bank runs a high risk of not being able to settle its obligations in the in the interbank uh, market because more and more loans as we said if it gives more and more loans they will be funded by more and more deposits that it creates when it uh, when it gives those, gives those loans mm-hmm. <clears throat> and those deposits is of course funding for the bank but they might move to other banks because people get those loans in order to use them and when they use them, those deposits may disappear for, for the bank who has actually issued the loan. Uh, and then the bank must replace that funding by some other funding, right? And that could happen in the interbank market or it could happen f- as a loan from the central bank. But in any case, if the bank needs to roll over large amount of short-term funding, that represents risk for the bank. And the bank will normally want to mitigate that risk uh, for instance, by attracting longer-term funding, as, as you mentioned, by, for instance, issuing bonds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that will increase the bank's price of funding. So, so, so the more deposits it creates, the more liquidity risk it gets. 
and the more is the banks need to sort of uh, obtain some other source of funding. So, so is, is what you're saying that on the one hand, it's the the business model of banking that in itself limits the the bank's creation of money, and together with uh, competition between banks. Of course, yeah. Mm. If we had only one bank in the economy, mm. this liquidity risk liquidity risk that I'm talking about would not be there because. <clears throat> whenever a deposit was used, it would always come back to the same bank, you know. Mm. But when we have many banks, they face this liquidity risk. So w- that being said, um, um, I mean, even if if I claim that it is in the bank's own interest to lend in a prudent way, uh, as you know better than me, history is full of examples of the opposite, leading to debt crisis and uh, and. Uh, and many things that we don't want. And that is, of course, why we have regulation. And regulation ensures that the bank fulfills minimum requirements with respect to capital, which is a buffer against credit risk, and liquidity, which limits sort of the maturity mismatch between assets and liabilities for the bank. So so, so I'm not saying that regulation is not important because it is, but, but I also like to point out that there is some sort of Pure private sector uh, incentives that, Not to that, create, that, that uh, limits the mm, banking in mm, creating infinite mm, uh, amount mm. of money. Yeah, because what you have seen in in booms in credit booms periods is that all banks at the same time uh, think it's a good idea to increase their lending, and at some point point this system collapses. Yeah, of course. If you could think of lending is linked to probably expectations of future income, right? Mm-hmm. And if if people expect for some reason that future income will increase a lot, well, then both clients and banks may be inclined to to give a lot of credit. Mm. And then if those expectations turn out to be wrong, then there is a problem in repaying that credit. Okay, so so uh, so there are a number of reasons why banks would not lend out infinite m- amounts of money or create infinite amounts of money. But uh, the central bank then, what uh, what role does the central bank and what is left for the central bank to control? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we talked about the sort of the old and the new view of money creation, and and of course in this what we can call the old view, the central bank had a very direct control over the money supply of a broad money supply because um, because there was this binding reserve requirements which meant that that um, if the central bank wanted <coughs> more credit it could just reduce the reserve requirement and that would sort of free up a lot of lending capacity for the banks right so and and then the opposite if it want, wanted to tighten so um, <coughs> and also in the past we've seen Quite a few countries used money supply as an intermediate target for monetary policy that tried to sort of target money supply. That that was sort of the, the target variable for them when executing monetary policy. Uh, it, because inflation is ultimately a monetary phenomenon. So, so if you control broad money, you will ultimately also control inflation was sort of the... the the thinking, mm-hmm. which is which is not wrong, but but in order for that to work, you need two things. You need that the central bank can con- can actually control broad money uh, through a kind of this reserve requirement uh, kind of policy, and secondly, you need that the link between broad money and inflation is relatively stable, and especially this second requirement turned out not to hold that well in practice in many many economies because 
what we call the velocity of money, the, the speed of which money circulates in the economy is not constant. And, um, and today, few, few modern advanced economies use money as an intermediate target for monetary policy at all. But, but they can still kind of control it uh, in the morning. Yeah, we, ne- yeah, we need to talk about that yeah. because uh, it, uh, uh, the central bank still has a role to play, obviously, yes, when it comes yes. to money. Fortunate yeah. for me working there, <laughs> we still have a role to play, yeah. Uh, so, so central banks today control inflation by by setting interest rates, and interest rates, of course, affect the price of credit, and thereby the demand for new credit and money creation. So, so, so the the the, the tool of the central bank now is is the the price rather than the quantity of of credit. If, if that's mm. one way of of putting it, at no, least. Could we say that they instead of controlling money directly, they do it indirectly through yeah. the price? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. And and mainly by affecting demand for 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 credit. Yeah, yeah. So reducing the interest rates, increasing the demand in theory, and yeah, or the opposite. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Uh, but in uh, in recent years, we have seen the central banks trying to to do this. Uh, you know, uh, creating more stimulating more money creation by reducing the interest rates to really low levels and some places even negative yeah. levels. But uh, but uh, it hasn't worked so well and so they have tried other things as well. So like the quantitative easing is also a way of creating money perhaps more directly. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, I mean, following the crisis, as you said, uh, there has been many years of... Uh, what we would think of as ultra expansionary monetary policy <clears throat> with the interest rates at zero or even negative. And still we haven't sort of seen a, a very clear pickup in, in, uh, in demand and at least not, uh, not inflation in, in line with the targets. It has no, and re- it, remained below target in, in many countries. Yeah, I mean, we have to remember that this was the, you know, the, now we are in a very special situation with the corona crisis, but, you know, the 10 years... 12 years after the financial crisis, there was, you know, the, the economies, at least in Europe, did not pick up very well. No, no. Despite the fact that the yeah. price of credit or price of money was really low. Absolutely. Yeah. So so that leads us to <coughs> to QE or qu- quantitative easing as a, as, a, as a tool, which um, was not entirely new in 2008 because the Japanese central bank had done it uh, even before that. But, uh, but of course, it, it, <coughs> it sort of became... Um, much more common after after the financial crisis, and then what is what is quantitative easing? Well, it means that the central bank buys assets, normally government bonds, from the private sector, and the sellers can be commercial banks or it can be other agents like pension funds or corporates or or even households in principle. And by demanding and buying those bonds, the central bank drives the price of the bond up, which means that the effective yield on the bond goes down. And the effective yield is sort of the, what we think of as a long-term interest rate in the economy. Mm. And probably the most important motivation is to, is to then reduce the level of long-term interest rates in the economy. Because you sort of did, they did what they could with the short-term interest rate, which, which you control by, by the policy rate in the traditional way. <coughs> but then there was a desire to, to get down longer-term rates even more. Um, and QE is sort of a more direct way of doing that. And it, it works 
both probably via lower term premium, what we could po- call a portfolio effect, which is that the, the price goes up and the, and the rate goes down when, when they actually buy it. And it also probably works through a signaling effect where the central bank tell the public implicitly that, okay, now we're doing this, we're, we're going to keep rates low, even short, uh, keep short-term rates low for a very, very long time. So the expectation of future short-term rates might also also fall. So, so and then QE in the second round may also affect other assets than those bought directly by the central bank because the sellers of government bonds, well, they receive cash and they might use that cash to buy other assets like credit bonds or even stock. So, so you, you get sort of, even, even though the central bank only buys government bonds, uh, you might get effects on, on uh, all kinds of financial assets in the economy, which, which sort of gives people who own assets a bigger fortune and, and they are inclined then to spend more is, is the idea. And, and of course, the, the pure intertemporal substitution effect of lower interest rate in itself also is, uh, is meant to bring uh, consumption and investment forward in time. Uh, so, so what's the effect of QE <coughs> on money supply? Well, that sort of depends on who the central bank buys from. Because if the central bank buys only from banks, there's only a swap of assets on the commercial bank's balance sheet, right? The bank, commercial bank will sell the government bond to the central bank and it will receive reserves in return. <clears throat> so broad money is not directly affected. In order to get an effect on broad money, that would require that the banks respond by actually lending more or that demand for credit is, is higher because low rates are has come down mm-hmm. and that sort of leads to more more lending by the bank but but there's no direct effect on on broad money from from QE when they buy from banks but if central banks buy from other than banks if they buy for instance from a pension fund or from a, um, a from a non-financial corporate then broad money will increase in parallel with the reserves because the pension fund is selling its government bond to the central bank that then the pension fund will receive a new deposit in its commercial bank. And the commercial bank in between here will get reserves from the central bank. <clears throat> so in this version of QE, commercial banks' balance sheets increase. It's not only a, a different composition of their assets, it's, it's an increase in their balance sheet. And uh, <clears throat> if they see these new deposits as relatively stable, they may regard themselves as more liquid, the banks, the commercial banks. And that can potentially stimulate lending even a bit more. I mean, this, this is probably not the main effect. The main stimulus effect still comes from the increased demand for credits due to lower long-term rates. But, mm. <coughs> but the effect on, on the different kinds of money is slightly different depending on who the central bank is buying the, the bonds from. And, and I guess this, this, this pension fund that now has... a. Uh has swapped really its government bonds with deposits, so yeah. it has money. Yeah, it would probably, or in theory, you would hope that this pension scheme would use this money, not in have it in the bank, but actually invest it in something. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, that it would invest it, and that, and that's how sort of the effect spread mm. towards different class of assets. Then, yeah. <clears throat> But uh, we also read a lot about that this type of money creation has not been so affected effective as. Uh, we perhaps hoped for. Yeah, it's it's hard to sort of give a definitive answer on whether and how QE has worked. I mean, 
I guess a uh, large part of academia is working on studies of this uh, and has been for the last uh, 10 years. Mm-hmm. And the conclusions are maybe not that uh, that uh, clear, but uh, but I mean, there seems clearly to be an impact on financial market prices, I mean, across a lot of assets. Um, and the effects further on to the real economy and inflation, they are much harder to estimate, but I think there is a sort of consensus that the effects have been positive. But how much and whether it varies over time and all of this is, is hard to, to say with, uh, with much uh, certainty. Yeah, so um, I'm thinking we have this new uh, new view of, uh, of money that you just presented for us. And uh, uh, in this, you know, in this course and in this podcast, we are concerned with financial crisis and how the financial crisis developed. And uh, I ask my students normally this question, uh, what is the role of money in financial crisis? And it would be interesting to hear just your your reflections uh, on that. And is, is some, has something changed uh, with how we you know, perceive the role of money when we have this new view of how money is created? Is the possibilities of the central bank to actually help avoid financial crisis reduced because of this uh, situation? Is it more difficult now to control the bank's lending and creation of money? Mm. And is this a more unstable system than the former one? Mm. Yeah, those are good questions. Um, I um, I think uh, yeah, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to say uh, for sure, but... Uh, but uh, if I remember correctly, there has been some work by <coughs> people at the London School of Economics, like Charles Goodhart, pointing to the fact that that financial crisis has become a much more common thing uh, since, say, the early 70s or something. For sure, for sure. Because, yeah. I mean, things have gotten less and less regulated. Mm-hmm. So, so I guess... Um, Seeing that, I, I guess there, you might say that there, there is some kind of a trade-off perhaps between economic efficiency and allocation of uh, capital and, and credit growth on the one hand, leading to higher growth, and, and the risk of having crisis on the, on the other hand. Uh, I, I think, that, I mean, we could of course go back to the system we had in the 60s, uh, but, uh, but that might uh, sort of uh, put some limits on on economic growth perhaps uh, compared to the system we have now but but so that's sort of a you you might you might see it as a, as a, as a trade off uh, i think uh, but but then it's also worth men- mentioning that that the financial crisis in 2008-9 was of course sort of a, a wake up call for regulatory authorities i would say uh, that i mean you have seen a lot of new banking regulation since then uh, <clears throat> which um, amounts to i don't know hundreds of thousands of pages just uh, uh, coming out with a very detailed regulation of the banking system um, and that uh, that is sort of a, at least an attempt to to try and uh, to try and have the best of both worlds in the mm-hmm. sense that uh, yeah, it seems to me that now uh, when earlier we could in a way trust uh, we had to rely on the central bank or the central bank had to you know make sure that we did not experience any crisis now we have to trust that the banks and you know that they we have of course the regulations of course but then you have to trust that the banks have their 
uh, risk assessing systems that they do not lend out to people who cannot afford to pay back, that they have you know, risk management systems that are better mm. or improved so that we can, yeah. uh, they can, we can give them this uh, you know, opportunity to, to yeah. create money. Yeah. But at the same time, we, we, uh, we need to trust or we hope at least that these banks manage to develop their internal systems in a way that, that uh, prevents you know, crisis from happening. Yeah, and, and as I said, I, I think they are forced to do that by regulatory authorities. Uh, <clears throat> and and also, I mean, the central bank has has uh, has uh, the interest rate still and and sort of the uh, a very important and powerful tool that sort of affects um, the demand for credit. So so I wouldn't say that the central banks are uh, are completely uh, out of. Uh, Surely. Out of armor, yeah. Yeah. but but uh, I mean, what we have seen lately is, of course, that that uh, for some reason the sort of real economy and inflation is is not picking up, whereas the effects on on financial markets seem to be there. So so that's sort of one one thing that w- I guess academics and central banks are are thinking of why why sort of. <coughs> You could see it as a sort of, sort of uh, financial markets are are responding more forcefully to the to the to the measures, and that the real economy is not is not following suit to the same extent. But uh, but then it's always difficult to say. Well, we have a very low rate, and there's not so high growth. But but uh, but you need to know what is the shock that the economy was actually exposed to in the first place. I mean. Of course, if the rates were not that low, the growth, the picture would have been even darker. I mean, so, so it's sort of the policy is to counter uh, a very big negative shock mm. and, um, and it works. But, but the shock might be so big that, that still you don't see the growth rates of, uh, mm. of very high numbers and still you don't see sort of inflation picking up, although... Although um, I think it's uh, at some point it uh, it will return. Yeah. So uh, my point uh, t- uh, talking about the banks or pointing to the banks was not that I, th- I of course central banks are still they have armor and they are really important. But I wanted really to to uh, put my focus on the banks because in the next podcast we are going to talk about banks and uh, how banks have developed their risk management systems in order to you know prevent. Uh, crisis from happening, and uh, we will talk to a banker and we'll see what he what he says about this, uh, how well suited they are today to to well produce money in a in a secure way that does not create crisis in in the future. So, I think I end there, and thank you very much uh, for coming, and, and uh, it was great talking to you. And, um, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Bye bye. Bye. This is a BI production. Listen to more podcasts. Go to bi.no slash podcasts.